Welcome to Social Fish Dancing, a production of Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. This is the fourth episode of our special coverage of the impact of COVID-19 on North America's coastal fisheries and fishing communities. We're a resilient people. This is just another problem that we run to, not a run away from. A season without a fishery could be the final nail in their coffin. We wouldn't even be able to do it if it weren't for the fact that I left my career. Hello, I'm your co-host, Emily D'Souza. I'm joined by... Philip Loring. And I'm Hannah Harrison. If you're new to Coastal Roots, we're a relatively new international collaboration of communities, scholars, activists, and others who are interested in supporting the health, resilience, and sustainability of coastal communities around the world. We focus this podcast on storytelling, and this week we are digging deeper into the varied experiences that fishermen and women around North America are having, some good, some bad, in coping with the impacts of COVID-19 on their fisheries. We've been covering this issue for about a month now, and increasingly we've heard stories of how people are adapting and remaining resilient in the face of change. Today we want to zero in on that last piece, resilience. Although, maybe first we should explain exactly what resilience means. Well, in a few words, resilience means bouncing back after weathering some problem or challenge. Think, for example, of one of those squishy stress toys that you squeeze with your hand. You can squeeze the heck out of it, and it springs right back to form when you're done. That's resilience in a nutshell. For people, of course, it's more complicated. We can be psychologically resilient, able to recover after a loss of a family member, and our livelihoods may or may not be resilient. Fishers are often very resilient, constantly coping with the challenges posed by weather, climate, markets, regulations, and most recently, COVID-19. Resilience, in some form or another, keeps coming up as we connect with more and more fishers from around North America. So today, we are bringing you a small sample of this, a story of resilience in three parts. First, we'll hear from some people who are making things work. Second, we'll hear from some folks where things are a little tighter and there are more barriers to coping with the changes that they're seeing. Finally, we will wrap up with a story about someone who is doing things differently and plans to keep those changes once COVID-19 is behind us. This industry is well known for being resilient of, of anything that comes our way. And there's many examples over many decades. That was Ulysses Pradas, owner of Prestige Foods, a vertically integrated fish buyer, processor, and seller of freshwater fish on the Great Lakes and elsewhere. You'll hear more from him in future episodes where we're focused on the Great Lakes. But when we spoke to him this week, he said something that really reflected his industry's attitude about being a community and how they are coping together with COVID-19. Something that separates our industry maybe from others, or if not the industry, it's the individuals in the industry. We have a hard work ethic amongst our fishing community and those in the processing plants as well. It's not an easy thing working on fish, right? But we've proven time and time again that we can adapt to anything that comes our way. We are a run to the problem kind of people. Every one of those people that wake up at three, four in the morning to go and fish in that lake under certain conditions that not a lot of people would undertake. and in the processing plants, it's not easy work. It's cold, it's wet. You know, we're a resilient people. And this is just another problem that we run to and not a run away from. And we embrace the change, try adapt to change, work through it together, and hope that when we get to the other side, the balance of the people that are here are the same. I really like what Ulysses says there about getting through things together. Often we think about what qualities make us resilient as individuals, but our 
relationships, community, and ability to act together for a common good are also a really key part of our resilience. Emily, you raise a good point here. There are a lot of different variables that can make a fishery more or less resilient to change. Aspects about the fishermen and women themselves, like their knowledge and skill and willingness to take risks, but also things about their environment. And by environment, I mean the regulatory environment. Do policies help or hinder them in being flexible or adapting to change? And also their social environment, their networks and neighbors and friends that they can rely on for support and for ideas. To that end, some fishermen are being faced with some difficult choices. Do they stay their current course and hope that the current way they run their operation can outlast the detrimental effects? Or should they change things up to cope with these new circumstances, but potentially run the risk that when things return to normal, their efforts to adapt will no longer be relevant? I saw a bit of both from the folks that I spoke to this week. Jordan Kasslinger from San Diego has continued to sell direct-to-consumer at Tuna Harbor Dockside Market, while also adapting to social distancing measures by adding an online storefront. We've done three weeks already, so this next Saturday will be a month since we started doing online. Because essentially, we're trying to eliminate people standing in line for the market because when all this started, the wait time to get into the market, people were saying, I was like, oh, 15, 20 minutes, like not that bad. We'll stand in line, talk to people around us. But there's been such an increase in people that the line has easily like doubled. And people are now saying that they're waiting an hour for like 45 minutes to an hour. I hate that they have to wait that long because typically on a Saturday, you know, it's free for all and they can walk in. And in the last month since we've kind of had to adjust to the whole COVID crisis. I listened to the podcast that you put up with me and some other fishermen recently and I noticed a huge difference with a lot of the folks you were talking to have like built-in markets or they deliver into larger cities. So selling off of their boat or using like existing infrastructure, existing fish markets to sell, and they're just seeing a change in their clientele. That second voice you heard was Melissa Collier of West Coast Wild Scallops in British Columbia. Um, We don't have that out here in BC in general, too. Our fishermen are spread uh, really far apart across the coast. And what she's talking about are some great examples of how where you're located, the community you have around you, and your own personal or financial flexibility to make change can all really impact a person's resilience in the face of big challenges. Too, a lot of fishermen don't sell from the docks because you could be there for a long time before you even sell anything. There's some guys that have some good followings and some good like email lists and stuff like that. And they'll call they'll email out or call out when they're coming in and say, I'll be on the docks from these days kind of thing. But um, a lot of people, it's just not feasible to do. We do direct sales for sure, but there's a lot of fishermen that don't. And it's not just due to the time and the effort. It's also due to the amount of paperwork and logistics that are involved. You have to have special permits to be able to sell off of your boat. If you want to actually not be on your boat and sell, um, there's other steps and procedures you have to do. Things like making sure that you're monitoring cold chains and having things in appropriate cold storage facilities. We wouldn't even be able to do it if it weren't for the fact that I left my career and I'm running all of that part of the business from home while Joel's fishing because he wouldn't be able to fish and do that at the same time. Like it's a lot of work. We've also been hearing about how having certain tools at your disposal, such as technology, apps, networks, etc., can really help fishermen adapt to these changing conditions. 
Fisher Direct was sort of uh, an idea that started over a weekend. And originally it was about putting a question out there, an open-ended question to the community saying, who needs help and what do you need help with in the form of a survey? And then I quickly realized that that's utterly useless because the question was obvious. Uh, what people seem to need help with most is coordination. You know, things were happening on the fly. I think that is representative of really what everybody's going through. Um, I noticed, I started picking up on the, the conversations and noticing, you know, that the biggest challenges were with deliveries and curbside and whatnot. So I had at my disposal some tools for developing a pretty simple, easy to deploy app that could take some of the heavy lifting off of coordination. The idea was to put something out as a proof of concept that may be helpful to folks that don't have any infrastructure in place or systems or processes and are not necessarily looking to subscribe to a platform right now or want to put up you know, any upfront costs or spend time learning and integrating and migrating. You know, it turns out, yeah, it, it is, it is useful and uh, people had some, you know, there was some immediate feedback. Uh, there was, uh, you know, there was good response from both sides, honestly, the consumer side, which was interesting because people were asking, well, like, well, can I buy fish with this? And it's like, well, yes, you can, but there's no fisher on the other side. So we have to wait on that first. Um, so, you know, the end result was, uh, you know, people are using it slowly and that's a good thing because we want to be cautious when we say, we have something that can help. That was Rasha Barber, who recently launched the Fisher Direct app, a new app that helps connect fishers with consumers. And it turns out that Rasha is actually not the only one working on something like this. I'm Joe Falcone. I'm the CEO and founder of Fundini Partners in Half Moon Bay, California. And back in 2012, uh, we developed a uh, component of a mobile app called Fishline. The intent at the time was to connect fishermen who were uh, in the middle of salmon season and consumers and uh, so that the consumers could drive up to our harbor, Pillar Point Harbor here, and uh, buy uh, salmon directly off the boat. So it's always been kind of an issue of how to, you know, get a, a fair price for their catch. And then even after they got the right to sell directly off the boat, um, the issue became marketing. And that's where Fishline stepped in is, is providing a very easy, free, direct, real-time way to do the, the marketing and, and let people anywhere literally uh, know, oh, we've got salmon to sell today. And tomorrow we might not have any. You know, it's very, <laughs> that's the way it goes. And so, you know, even today you can look at Fishline and you can see there's entries there that say sold out. There's entries that say we've got fish to, to deliver. Um, and it changes day to day. And that's the, the wonderful thing about it is people can watch it and they can say, oh, he, this guy just came in with a load of crab. I think I'll go down and I'll pick up some. So it's great if you can be resilient during times of stress or change, but I worry about looking at examples of people being resilient and saying, hey, this wasn't that bad after all. Because being resilient doesn't take away the fact that you experienced harm. It doesn't negate the cost of being resilient. 
This week, Jasmine Paul, a crab and cod fisherman from Newfoundland, really said this best when she talked to us about the decision to go fishing, even when prices are low, and put her family at risk. So I did ask my parents what our plan was, and Dad said, you know, if everyone else is going to go ahead and put out their pots, then uh, we will as well. Uh, but one issue is, like, with the price being set and the fishery being open, it doesn't exactly give people a lot of choice, right? So if the fishery is open, then they're going to be expected to work. It doesn't really matter if they feel if it's unsafe because there's no other option. They won't be able to get an extension to the EI or be eligible for the new um, CERB. For our listeners in the States, what she's talking about there are the EI, Employment Insurance, which is federal, and also the federal government's CERB, which is their COVID-19 relief program. So people are kind of put in position like, what do we do? Um, because they still are going to need income. So I think people will manage, but why, why should we have to manage? And why should we have to take two ninety a pound for a product that's going to be frozen until the market opens and then sold at a really high price? It just doesn't really seem like, is it worth it? If people locally were eating the snow crab, then it would be a no-brainer for me. But I think about going and like breaking my bubble and breaking my parents' bubble. And I also have to be around my 91-year-old grandmother if I go fishing because like she's actually still a part, a part of it all because she cooks meals for us on occasion. And like she likes to do that. It's like normal for her. Um, so that's something to think about there. You know? So... What will things look like on the other side of COVID-19? This is a question that we've been mulling over here at the podcast, and we've been hearing it pop up in our interviews as well. The thing about resilience is that not everyone has it to the same degree. There are invariably winners and losers when groups of people are faced with dramatic challenges like this one. It all comes down to context and circumstances, and sometimes even history. One example of this came from Ben Wiper. Ben wears a lot of hats, including as a town councillor and a fisheries consultant in Newfoundland, and he really drove home what it would mean to local communities if the many links in the seafood supply chain can't find a way to work safely around COVID-19. I have little doubt that if there's no inshore fishery, that the fallout from this will be just as bad, if not worse, than the moratorium of 1992. A season without a fishery could be the final nail in their coffin. A number of the communities here, you know, have populations that are less than 500, some of them less than 300, less than 100, and the fishery is the primary economic activity for some of these communities. So when we look at what happens if there is no inshore fishery this year, the group uh, that is most impacted is going to be working age families with children. They simply cannot afford to not be working. Our region, particularly on the Great Northern Peninsula, but all outport communities in Newfoundland and Labrador have well above the average age resident across Canada. We are, we are the oldest province, without, without a doubt, and our outports are the oldest of the oldest. So if a fishery doesn't happen, we're going to be driving out the future of the inshore fishery that remains, that happened to be able to survive the moratorium that initially devastated the inshore fisher. Following the same thought exercise, once those people leave, working age adults with children, then the school shuts down in these communities. Once the school shuts down, 
then every other working age family with children not working in the fishery has to leave the community because their school's gone. When the school's gone, then it's not long till the grocery store and the gas station go. Not long till the bank goes. And if anyone doubts this is real, I think we'll have an answer by this fall if there isn't a fishery. As it is, even with a limited or restricted fishery, a lot of these communities aren't going to make it. They're not going to close overnight, but this will be the next domino to fall in that direction. I'd say within a generation, um, some of these communities won't make it uh, if we don't have a fishery this summer. Ben's interview is a really heartbreaking reminder of the stakes that are involved in this issue, and it's a reminder that not all communities have as much room to be resilient, whether because of economic, political, or historical factors that are largely out of people's control. But you know, for other folks that we've talked to, the changes brought about by COVID-19 have offered an opportunity for them to do something differently. And for some, those changes might be permanent. That's true. And I think we can wrap up today with one more story from Steve Curian, who we also heard from last week. He's the owner of Wild for Salmon and fishes out of Bristol Bay, Alaska. We're doing just fine, I think, for this day and age. Sales are um, continuing to tick upward. Um, So once COVID hit and and we saw that um, big spike in sales, now we feel like we've kind of settled into a new norm. And with the meat shortages, the um, wild Alaskan seafood has just really grown in popularity. So even though we're in a time where I'm not happy COVID's here one bit, but if there is a shining liner there, more people buying wild Alaskan seafood and understanding the sustainability of it, I think is is great. Uh, Farmers markets have been the base of our business since we started, and they kind of get to be hard to handle as you start to uh, put other people in your place to go go to the market and talk to the customers. Um, and we also saw less traffic at farmers markets over the last two years. So I'm hoping that we can use this um, growth on the online side to pivot and go away from farmers markets since they're so um, labor intensive. COVID is allowing an opportunity to pivot and people, in my opinion, people are going to be okay with it. Um, that you're not going to be at those physical locations and that kind of like the new way of business is going to be more delivered to your door. So um, we are going to continue down that road. I think it's a a cleaner model um, when you have five sales channels that you're trying to operate in and you can bring it down to three. I think you can do your customers better service. Thanks for joining us. Social Fish Sensing will be bringing you the voices and stories of small-scale fishermen and women from around North America for the foreseeable future of the COVID-19 pandemic. These interviews and episodes are being recorded week to week, and we aim to bring you a new one every Tuesday. To connect with the people you've heard on this podcast, including the fishermen, visit us on the Coastal Roots website at www.coastalroots.org. If you'd like to share your story with us, and we hope you will, send us an email at stories at coastalroots.org. Coastal Roots Radio is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and by the Arrow Food Institute at the University of Guelph. We also receive support from the American Anthropological Association and the Local Catch Network. Today, we heard from Ulysses Pradas, Melissa Collier, Jordan Katzlinger, Steve Curian, 
Ben Wiper, Rasha Barbar, Joe Falcone, and Jasmine Paul. You're listening to Montana Skies by Montana Skies, available at the Free Music Archive. See you next time.